The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com podcasts. Throughout his presidency, Donald Trump has repeatedly attacked the Affordable Care Act. Obamacare is a disgrace to our nation, and we are solving the problem of Obamacare. Now the Trump administration is getting another chance to dismantle President Obama's signature White House achievement, siding with Texas and 19 other Republican-led states to have a judge toss out some aspects of the Affordable Care Act. Joining me is Timothy Jost, a professor at Washington and Lee School of Law. Timothy, what's the legal argument of Texas and the coalition of states against the Affordable Care Act? is that the Supreme Court in 2012 held that Congress lacked the authority under the Commerce power to adopt the individual mandate as a command or requirement, but that it could do it and did do it as a tax. Uh, however, in 2017, uh, Congress repealed the tax penalty beginning in 2019, and therefore Texas argues the individual mandate is now entirely unconstitutional, and uh, the, the, the entire statute was built on the individual mandate, and therefore all 900 pages of the statute collapse. What is your legal opinion of their argument? It's absurd. <laughs> uh, and I think most legal uh, experts who have looked at it agree with that uh, in one way or another, including some people who... Uh, conservative legal scholars who have supported earlier challenges uh, to the statute. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's flawed in many ways. Um, the individual mandate at this point uh, is not a command. Uh, the Supreme Court held that it wasn't. Um, the tax has been zeroed out, but there are lots of taxes that are taxes that uh, no one is paying right now that are, have zero, so it's still there on the books as a tax. But most importantly, uh, when Congress repealed the or zeroed out the penalty in 2017, it had no intention of getting rid of the rest of the statute. It had already tried to get rid of some parts of the statute, and it failed. And numerous senators said, uh, we are not doing anything here to change anything else in the statute. And, uh, and so the judge, uh, should, uh, single judge in North Texas, should not rewrite the statute when Congress refused to do so. Now, I understand that the administration, the Trump administration, is not going as far as, the, as Texas is. What's the Trump administration position? Well, the Trump administration position is that if the individual, well, first they agree the individual mandate is now unconstitutional, but they say the consequence of that is that the court should strike the 
provisions of the Affordable Care Act that require insurers to cover people with pre-existing conditions and not charge them more and to cover specifically those pre-existing conditions. And the, the Trump administration argues that, that those requirements cannot survive without the individual mandate. Uh, interestingly, though, however, yesterday they said, uh, but don't rule on this till after open enrollment closes in December, because otherwise you'll cause chaos in the insurance industry. And what I think they're really saying is don't rule before the midterms, because you'll cause chaos in the, in the elections for Republicans. <laughs> Well, it it is an is it an odd position? Does it seem to you because that is such pre existing conditions and insurers having to take people even if they have pre existing conditions is such a popular part of Obamacare and polls. Yeah, I think it's probably the most popular part of the of of the Affordable Care Act. Um, it is it, in in it. it and one must admit that the Obama administration in 2012 also said that if the individual mandate was found unconstitutional, that would undermine the guaranteed issue and community rating requirements as well. Um, but um, that was before 2014, and we now have evidence that, in fact, we can get rid of the individual mandate and the rest of the law works pretty fine. Um, the rate increases that insurers have put in for next year, fully understanding that the individual mandate is gone, are very moderate compared to previous years. Some, some insurers are even reducing their premiums. So I think uh, that... There's no evidence at this point that the individual mandate is essential to the operation of any other part of the Affordable Care Act. So the administration's move here has left it to a coalition of 17 Democratic state attorneys general to defend Obamacare here. What's their argument? Does it follow what you've been saying? Yeah, I mean, basically what I've said is their argument. Number one, the mandate is constitutional. Uh, and number two, if the court decides to hold it unconstitutional, it uh, is completely independent of the whole, it should be severed in legal language from the whole rest of the statute, and the whole rest of the statute should be sustained. Now, the Supreme Court has ruled on various parts of Obamacare, as we remember. If this does go to the Supreme Court, let's just say it, it ends up at the Supreme Court, how is the court likely to hold, and would the presence of Brett Kavanaugh on the court make a difference? Well, I think that uh, it, it's been to the Supreme Court twice now, and both times the four Democratic appointees on the Supreme Court have been joined by Chief Justice Roberts to uphold it. So, in a sense, um, uh, Judge Kavanaugh's uh, uh, appointment is not or decision is not crucial one way or the other. Um, I, uh, but I don't know how, how Justice Kavanaugh would rule on this, and he, of course, is a Justice Kavanaugh, I should say, and he, of course, is steadfastly <laughs> avoiding that question in the confirmation hearings. Um, it would certainly, uh, to my mind, be preferable to have a Supreme Court justice who uh, would be more favorably inclined toward the Affordable Care Act. But, but, I mean, ultimately, we're looking at legal questions here, and I think the law on this is pretty clear um, that, uh, again, the, uh, the, it's, it's 
constitutional and, and should be severed. All right. Thank you so much. That's Timothy Jost, a professor at Washington and Lee School of Law. The judge has not ruled in the case on the preliminary injunction, and the hearings just took place yesterday. It's day three of the confirmation hearings for Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh. The highlight of the hearing so far has been Kavanaugh's refusal to answer Democratic senators' pointed questions on abortion, affirmative action, and presidential power, among other things. Here's Democratic Senator Richard Blumenthal asking about Kavanaugh's position on abortion. Can you commit, sitting here today, that you would never overturn Roe v. Wade? So, Senator, each of the... uh uh, eight justices currently on the Supreme Court, when they were in this seat, declined okay, to answer that question. Joining me is Steve Sanders, professor at Indiana University's Maurer School of Law. Steve, Kavanaugh seems to have refined the Supreme Court nominee's art of not answering a question, even in areas that he's written in extensively. He's calling it nominee precedent. So are these hearings just for show? I, 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 unfortunately, as much as I hate to admit uh, thinking so, June, I, uh, I think I have to agree. I mean, so what we've seen over and over again is the Republican senators asking, either sort of gassing on to just run out the clock or asking these really embarrassing softballs and or asking him about his faith and his daughter's basketball team. And what we see among the Democrats, though, I think is just as frustrating, and that is they should know well that if they ask a pointed question like Senator Blue Blumenthal asked um, uh, Kavanaugh, they're not going to get a response. No Supreme Court nominee in recent history has been willing to answer a quote-unquote hypothetical like that. What I wish the senators would do would go up just a little bit to a higher level of abstraction and engage him about the meaning and the history of certain constitutional provisions and his judicial philosophy. We saw a little bit of that this morning, actually, with Senator Graham, Lindsey Graham, asking him about the extent of how far can we stretch the word liberty, which is in the Constitution, that word is the basis, really, of Roe versus Wade and many other controversial decisions. The problem is Senator Graham kept cutting off Kavanaugh and wouldn't let Kavanaugh give some meaningful answers. Graham kept, you know, filibustering about what he thought about the issue. So I, I think, in short, um, I'm more and more prepared with every passing hour to agree with you. Now. Kavanaugh tried to back away from his written views in a law review article that a president shouldn't face criminal investigation. Did he succeed in backing away? Well, I, I think he made the fair point that he, he said, uh, you know, he, he clarified that he was arguing about things Congress could do, perhaps Congress should do. He wasn't making, uh, he wasn't giving his own view of uh, 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 the president's role under the Constitution or the president's role under existing law. He was making a suggestion of something Congress might want to think about and why that might be a good idea. So, you know, there are nuances in a lot of these issues that get lost. And so I, I think it was a fair point of his to point out what he was saying and what he wasn't saying on that question. And uh, what what's your take on his description of the Nixon case? Well, so that's interesting. He he really sort of brought up United States versus Nixon himself. That's the case in which the Supreme Court ruled that the president couldn't withhold uh, the Watergate tapes, 
which were being subpoenaed, not in a legal proceeding that Nixon himself was involved in, but in a legal proceeding that several of his aides were involved in, a criminal prosecution. And I think it was interesting to contrast his forthright embrace uh, and praise for that decision. I think he said something like that was one of the Supreme Court's finest hours. He had no problems with that, yet again, repeatedly refusing to endorse or really say anything about Roe versus versus Wade or some more controversial decisions. Um, But, you know, for another reason, his embrace of the United States versus Nixon, I think, was interesting in that um, it might cut against a little bit the idea that he has this broad uh, view of sort of limitless executive power and executive discretion and the freedom that the president should have from uh, having to obey criminal process that other people have to obey. So, Steve, this morning, some Democrats released confidential memos and emails. Maisie Hirono uh, released an email which dealt with his his, uh, talking about Roe v. Wade as not a settled precedent years ago. So how should how should pro-choice people view his answers as comforting or as disturbing? I think I, I, I think they just don't really shed any light on his uh, views as a judge. That what he was say it was a an email that he wrote in the White House, which was um, making comments on a draft op-ed that somebody else had written, and this person had said had referred to Roe versus Wade as "quote unquote" settled law or settled precedent. And Kavanaugh at that point pointed out, well, not everyone agrees that it is settled precedent. I don't think that was factually untrue. I mean, you could say Kavanaugh may have been motivated to point that out by the fact that he also thinks it's not settled precedent. But Kavanaugh pointed out in that email that at that point, three justices of the Supreme Court were prepared to overrule Roe versus Wade. It was probably a fair, accurate statement that many of the lawyers and scholars in the Federalist Society that Brett Kavanaugh was hanging out with didn't regard Roe versus Wade as quote-unquote settled law. So I think that's pretty thin stuff. I mean, again, he was, I think, making an observation about the broader community of legal scholars that I, I think was not in and itself uh, in itself inaccurate or unfair as a characterization. It's certainly an article of faith among progressive lawyers and scholars that Roe versus Wade is settled law or should be considered settled law. That's different than making a statement that everyone thinks it is. Now, Legal analysts have said that his confirmation could create the most conservative Supreme Court in generations. Do you agree? And if so, in what areas might we see a change? Well, I think we're uh, likely to, uh, well, uh, uh, abortion, uh, since we've been talking about that, is probably one of the areas. There are um, constant attempts at the state level by conservatives to pass laws that they know uh, might be struck down at a lower court level because their goal is to get to higher courts and ultimately the Supreme Court and chip away at abortion rights. Um, I'm not the first person to say this, but I think it bears repeating, you don't need to over turn Roe versus Wade um, to uh, uh, sharply restrict abortion availability from what it is today. In fact, the Supreme Court itself in 1992 backed away from uh, Roe versus from the letter of Roe versus Wade and modified it and narrowed it. And and there are lots of ways in which um, 
a conservative court could continue to do that, could continue uh, saying, well, this is not an undue burden to a right to abortion. That's not an undue burden to a right to abortion without ever having to undo uh, Roe versus Wade itself. Thank you so much for your insight, Steve. That's Steve Sanders, professor at the Indiana University Maurer School of Law. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.